Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, you guys. The Other People Podcast is a free show. All episodes are offered freely. More than 500 and counting. There is an Other People app. That, too, is free. It's all free. You can listen to everything for free. So if you would like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you like the program, if you want to show some support, patreon.com slash other PPL pod. There's a helicopter flying over my house. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Jamie Attenberg is back on the program for a second time. She was just here a few days ago to uh, talk with me. She is celebrating the, the paperback publication of her latest novel, All Grown Up, which is available now for Mariner Books. So Jamie Attenberg, in just a minute, uh, what can I tell you about my life uh, at this particular moment? It has been uh, hectic. I feel like it's always hectic, but it's been extremely hectic lately because uh, my wife, Carrie, has gone down with the flu. She got this terrible flu that everybody's been uh, getting over this, you know, the past few I guess months now. Uh, I had it over the holidays. I know what it's like. It's no fun. So uh, I think it was like last Thursday she got it. And I've basically been uh, on my own since then because we quarantined her. We put her in a room. We sealed it off. We don't want the kids to get it uh, for obvious reasons. So I'm juggling both kids. My daughter's on spring break. She doesn't even have school. 
We've got Twiggy, the puppy, which I think a lot of you guys know about. So it's me, two kids, a puppy. Like That's it. And uh, last night, River, my son, he's two. You know, he got up at like 11 and, and I, I should have just rocked him down again. I should have just sat there for like an hour or whatever it takes, rock him down, get him back to sleep, put him in his crib. But I was lazy, so I brought him into my bed. And that means that like, I didn't sleep. I thought I would sleep, but I didn't sleep. He was like squirming in bed all night. He kind of slept, but I didn't sleep. So then I had to get up this morning, take him to some appointments. I'm like chugging coffee, trying to make breakfast, take the dog for a walk somehow. It's like, it's chaos. So, you know, there's that. It just feels like the last few days have been very like medical and uh, hyper-scheduled. There's been like job interviews in the middle of it all, like, you know, like video chats and stuff like that. It's intense. So uh, there's that. And then prior to my uh, wife, Carrie, getting the flu, like River, we thought had an ear infection. So Carrie, like she used one of these doctor apps. I guess these are popular now. You have like an app and you can just have a doctor come to your house. You don't have to get in the car, which uh, in Los Angeles isn't, you know, that's a, that's a good thing. So she, she's like, she tells me, you know, she told me earlier in the day, she's like, you know, I'm going to have a doctor just come look at his ear. I use the app. I said, okay, I kind of forgot about it. And then, uh, you know, it was like right around five o'clock in the evening. I was, uh, I had just taken Twiggy like for a quick walk around the block. And I was like just at our porch and I turned around and there's two doctors in like white lab coats approaching female doctors and they were young like that was one thing I noticed like this is something that you notice when you get into your 40s like all of a sudden your doctor is like 28 (laughs) and uh there's just like a young uh woman doctor she had like a nose ring I'm like wow like what's going on never had a doctor with a nose ring she looked like she was like just got back from Coachella you know but uh, whatever. So I, I uh, let the doctors into the house. There's like a doctor. And I think then she had like her, uh, you know, a doctor's assistant or like nurse practitioner or whatever you want to call it. And uh, I'm looking for River and my, you know, my wife, Carrie, I'm like, where, you know, so I, I lead the doctors through the house. We go back to the garage, which is sort of like a rec room. It's where I record. And uh, there they are. It's my, it's Carrie's there. My son River's there. My daughter, Evan, like the whole family just happened to be in the garage. And I bring the doctor uh, and her assistant into the, into the garage and she's going to look at River's ear. No big deal. So I pick him up and then I, I sit on the floor. I was like, how are we going to do this? So I sit on the floor cause there's not like any app, you know, you don't have the usual trappings of a uh, physician's office. There's no table. So I sit on the floor. If you can imagine it, I've got my son in my lap and, uh, my legs are just like straight out basically, or like kind of like V-shaped. But you know what I'm saying? I'm sitting on the floor. And this doctor with a nose ring uh, like essentially straddles one of my legs. And I don't want to make too much out of it. It's just a weird moment. It was, it was like hard to decipher. And uh, I was looking at Carrie I was like glancing at her, like trying to make eye contact. Like, are you seeing this? Uh, I think like there's a pediatrician sitting on my foot. And she didn't need to sit on my foot. Like it wasn't necessary. 
And I guess that's like what, like what I'm driving at. Like I feel like maybe she made the choice to sit on my foot. And then, I, then in my head, I was like, well, maybe you're projecting something here. Like maybe, like, maybe this is just, like, how the woman operates. She's not a self-conscious person. She's a pediatrician. She goes door to door. She looks at children. She sits on people's feet. But uh, ask yourself this. <laughs> ask yourself this. When's the last time somebody sat on your foot? Who you just met? It's been a while, hasn't it? So if you can try to picture this... Yeah, I'm sitting there. I've got a uh, pediatrician with a nose ring. It's like sitting on my foot. And I've got my son in my lap. I'm like looking at my wife like, you know, are you seeing this? And I couldn't move because if I move, like she was, you know, her nether region was on my laces. If I moved my foot at all, I was worried she might think like something, you know what I'm saying? I was, I was frozen. I felt a little violated and confused. It's a new experience for me. I haven't had a lot of physicians in my home, you know. It's adjusting to the new gig economy. I told Carrie about it afterwards. I was like, did you see that I was trying to make eye contact with you? Doctor sat on my foot. She was like, yeah. I was like, isn't that weird that she chose to sit on my foot? very overtired and uh, it turned out that River didn't even have an ear infection he was fine and I should add too the, the doctor was very nice nurse practitioner very nice it was a positive experience I felt like they were competent I was just confused by the fact that she sat on my foot that's all that's all I wanted to express So anyway, uh, speaking of River, he was just in here a second ago. He, uh, he's two now. He, as many of you know, he's been dealing with health challenges since he was born and, uh, has been doing pretty well and we're really proud of him, uh, for a whole host of reasons. But one of the things that we're excited about is the fact that, that he's talking a lot. And so, uh, when he was in here, I asked him, I said, do you want to say something to the microphone? And, uh, he, he said that he did. So I talked to him for a second. I thought it would be funny to share just like a bit of that with you. So here's River. Okay, I'm here with my son River. He's two and a half years old. River, can you say hi to everybody? Hi, everybody. How are you feeling today? You feeling good? Yeah. What's your favorite movie? What movie do you like? What did we watch the other day? Karate Kid. Who's in Karate Kid? Who's your favorite character? Mr. Miyagi. Can you do karate? Hi. All right. Well, can you say goodbye to everybody? Say bye-bye. Bye-bye. Say talk to you later. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. All right. I mean, you know, it's pretty cute. But I know some of you hate children, so uh, I respect that. You don't like children. It's okay. Not everybody has to like children. I'm just a proud father. Hope you can understand that. My son is two. He was just in here. What am I supposed to do? 
Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today is Jamie Attenberg. Her new novel, uh, All Grown Up, is available in trade paperback from Mariner Books out there now. Go get your copy. I had such a good time talking with her. Uh, We went for a walk afterwards. We got a smoothie together. We took Twiggy for a walk. She got the full Twiggy experience. So... Uh, just a joy to have her on the program once again and to get to meet her in person for the first time. This is Jamie Attenberg. Her new book, One More Time, is called All Grown Up. And it's it's falling apart. Like, you're watching it fall apart. Um, and I felt so crazy. I, I bought a house and moved down there, and I was like, I'm moving. To, I'm buying land on a state that's sinking. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Well, my, but I did it anyway. Listen, my dad uh, grew up down in South Louisiana on the Gulf, and uh, it's the city that he grew up in is going to be gone. Like mm. I think it's I think that's legit. It's one of those, yeah. It's like down in the bayou. It's gone. It's gone in like a hundred years. Yeah, yeah. Right? You know, and so that's that's uh, something to contend with. <laughs> it's really yeah. I mean, it's just it's and in the city you know we just had a bunch of flooding that went on just within the city where it rained a bunch and and nobody had like cleared out i mean this is a true story is like they needed to like clear out like all the you know storm sewers and all that kind of stuff and they they finally did and it was like 10 tons of mardi gras beads for real 10 tons i maybe made that number up but like a like an an insane amount of mardi gras beads that were just blocking the sewer system <laughs> in New Orleans. God only knows what the sewer system in New Orleans looks like. I know. Yeah. Like, it's like Vegas because people go there, especially when you're going to the quarter, like you're going there to get fucked up. And it, it's like when you go to Vegas, like not only are you going there to have fun, but you're going there to have like the most fun you've ever had in your life. It's pretty fun there. Yeah. You're trying to set a record. I feel like people go there trying to set some sort of personal record. So when I think of hotels or I think of like Airbnbs, I'm always like, what happened in this room? More so, more so than I do when I stay in other cities. Yeah, I, um, I actually, because I travel so much, um, I like New Orleans is where I go to like dry out. Like New Orleans is like my calm space for me. Oh, so interesting. It used to be when before I moved there, it was I would go there for three months a year, and I and it was not that for me. It was like have as much fun as you can possibly have while you're here. But now it's like home. It's where I live. So I mean, I do have a good time there, but. I, I don't, you know, people who live there are not the ones who are walking around Bourbon Street. That's right. Yeah. It's like, it's like a Hollywood we have Boulevard. have jobs and lives and don't want to die. But very, and very few, I mean, they don't, I guess people live in the quarter, but it's uh, like most, my cousin, I have a lot of cousins who live down that way and they live uptown or off Carrollton or, yeah. you know, something. Although apparently they just changed all this like 
they changed like the Airbnb law for the quarter. So you can only do it X amount of time. And so everybody's selling their houses, their home, like condos or whatever. So there's like, a, there's a glut of, of available housing in the French quarter. So if you want to buy a condo, now's the time. Now is really the time to do it. There's, it's more than they've ever had because everyone's like, well, I can't make any money off of it anymore. So they're getting out, Yeah, which is great. Remember when I, Brad and Angelina had a place in the quarter? Yeah. Do you know? I remember I've walked by he it. He made all these houses after Katrina. The, is that good? Yeah. They're, they're across the, um, they're in the, I live in the upper ninth ward and they're, they're in the lower ninth ward. Um, across the, did I just reverse that? Um, across the bridge. Um, they call it, um, make it right. Pittsburgh. Oh, but isn't it like the make it right foundation? I don't know. Something no, like but that. that's what they call that whole thing. Cause it's Brad Pitts. Oh, it's Pittsburgh. <laughs> Yeah, he's like some sort of he's got some sort of architecture. Fetish. They're cool. They're kind of cool looking. Houses. I've never been in any of them, but they're kind of cool looking houses. But they're really, um, kind of away. They're sort of off in the distance when you drive by from yeah. the main road. Anyway, I'm not really. I, I nobody was, cares. I remember. No, I, I care. <laughs> I remember walking past the house that they or the you know they own this like giant townhouse in uh, the French Quarter, and I forget what street it was on. But yeah, it's right there. And I was like, were they ever actually there, or did they just get it like post Katrina as like some sort of statement? Yeah. It's almost like I don't know the answer to that question. Although it is, people do leave you alone there. Yeah, I think I see celebrities every so often who live there that I didn't know live there. Like who? I don't. Um, I just forgot her name. Um, Jessica Lang. She lives there. She lives. She has a place there, and she's there frequently. Um, I didn't know John Goodman lived there, but he apparently lives there. I just read an interview with him where he said he lived in New Orleans. Wow. I sometimes see Woody Harrelson. He has a house there. Huh. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's got like, this is the thing about New Orleans is that it feels singular in a time in which few cities in America feel that way. Like when you're there, mm. you know, you're in New it's Orleans cool there when you're in like, you know, like where I grew up in Indianapolis, it's like, you, know, you could be in Cincinnati. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's cool. It's cool there. Um, it feels really special to me. I feel like really connected with my neighborhood, you know, only two years in, but I feel like I like my neighborhood. I want to participate in my neighborhood. Um, I, Do you know your neighbors? I know my neighbors. I, I live like the street I live on. I know more, no neighbors around the corner, but I have a lot of friends in the neighborhood. Um, they were just trying to start this. Uh, I'm so obsessed with this, but they were trying to develop a boutique hotel. They bought somebody, some these evil developers from Philadelphia pretend, pretend like they're cool and down, but they are not. Um, they bought four houses that had a shared backyard, ev- evicted everybody in the house, and they want to turn it into a boutique hotel. It's like a block away from my house. And the back of their houses butts up against other people's houses that they don't, you know, people who've lived there. And they want to turn it into like a wedding venue and put a pool in and a restaurant. And so the whole neighborhood is really united and has like gone to like city council meetings. And I went in front of the historic um I can't remember what it stands for, like HDLC, which is like a historic design commission and talked about my concerns and um, everybody's signing petitions and protesting. And it's, it's, I don't know if it's going to work or not, but they seem to keep getting rejected along the way, but it still keeps kind of moving along. But I've learned so much in the past three months participating in in this protest against this um, boutique hotel, but it does feel like if it goes in that it will somehow really dramatically alter the you know the, the nature the feel and the nature of the neighborhood locally like i think getting active locally is great and it does work like i just uh i was petitioning our city councilman for more patrols in our neighborhood because mm. there's just been like a spike in weird crime and theft and 
you know, I was like, this is enough. Like I've got kids. Like, and so I went to a meeting and it was Congratulations. like, and it was, yeah, but it was like, it was like three people. There was yeah. like three people there, but then they have this board sitting up there in the front of the room. And they care and it's their job to care. Right. And I stood they up. They have to I, pay attention. And you know what they did? What? The LAPD just increased the patrols in this neighborhood. Ah. Huh. So I don't know if it wasn't just me. Yeah. There, there were a lot of people chirping, but like it, it does work. You yeah, know? it and, does. Local politics is pretty hot. I, you know, in New York for 20 years, just my neighborhood, there was not um, any, the local politics scene was very weird there because I lived right on, um, right on the edge of a Hasidic community and they had their own deal going on. So it was like, you couldn't even figure out what you were supposed, you know, there was just, it was very mysterious. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, so I, and I was like, I also felt like I couldn't, I, New York can make you feel really helpless at times. Um, because it's so vast. I was going to say, you just get kind of lost in it. Yeah. Um, and I think that the smaller, something about the smaller city is making me feel like I can really participate and help make, you know, a little bit of a change. I do, guess. You, do you miss New York? Do you ever think to yourself like, well, I don't no. want to go back or did you have your time? I lived there a long time. I lived there 20 years. Um, I just was back, back this week as part of this tour. It's too big for me now. It's too noisy. Uh, I love all the people there. Like, that's the thing. It's 20 years, 15 years, whatever, friendships. And it's hard to let that go. Um, and I don't want to let it go. And also, like, my business is kind of still there because um, that's where the media and publishing world is. But But you established yourself before you left. I did the work. You did the work. I did the work. Um, but I don't know. I can't really imagine living there again. It doesn't seem, I love having, I have a tiny house, but it's mine and this little backyard and I like, I just feel, um, happy and comfortable there. Although, so when I came back to New York this week, I was, this happens at least once whenever I come back, somebody will say to me, Oh, did you get nice now? Like, are you like, I'll just, I'll be like a little bit too easygoing about something. And they're like, we're going to need you to like <laughs> get it together a little bit and yeah. get the little edge back in. Like we're going to. And so now that I've been on the road for a week and I'm, a, I'm a little tired and edgy for sure. But, I sense that about you. Yeah. It's <laughs> like this, she could stab me. at any <laughs> But I, um, yeah, I definitely need to sleep in my, cause I, I mean, I've slept in like four beds this week, but, um, I definitely need to go home to my own spot. Uh, but it's. I don't want, it's not worth it to me to go back to New York and put on the armor that you need to wear in order to survive in that city. I'd rather just be, I'd, I'm just happier. Armor's heavy. It's real heavy. Um, and I'm, I don't know, I'm just getting older and I was like, what do I want? Like, okay. what do I... So let, let's get to your book. Oh yeah. Cause it's like you know, all grown up. Oh yeah. And, uh, I was thinking about it like, cause I, I mean, independent of your book, but also because I knew I was going to be talking to you. I was like, what does it mean to be grown up? I don't know. <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> like, I, yeah. And like, do you ever really feel grown up? Uh, there's such a part of me that I feel is kind of permanently adolescent, which might be like a damning admission to make. Mm. But I just mean like confused, a little anxious, unsure of myself, mm. not wanting to take on the burdens of responsibility that come with adulthood and you know, I mean, doesn't everybody have a little bit, of, a little tug of that? It's sort of nice to be. I don't know the answer. I mean, it might be a personal thing for you. <laughs> <laughs> Although I just was in your house and you have children and a puppy and I mean, yeah, I have like the, you have a life. I have the trappings of adulthood, but there is part of me that like does feel, I guess, connected to 
past me's. Uh, and maybe that's just normal human stuff. I just wanted to, for me, I just wanted to know, I wrote, you know, you, anytime you write a book, you, there's a question you're answering, right? There's many questions you're answering, but I think I was trying to understand what it means, what it meant to be a grown up. I learned from this book. I mean, the character, her choices are different than my choices and we're vastly different people, but, um, but I was solving that problem through her. I was posing those questions through her. So her, the answers she arrived at are different than the answers that I arrived at, but I'm, I'm a cool with being with an adult, making adult choices and being a grown up. but also it's easier for me because I have like a more unconventional life. Right. So I don't have kids and I, um, do whatever I want to do. And my job allows me the freedom to travel and, um, or make my own schedule. So, um, so it's almost in a way, I guess I didn't think it was easy for me to be an adult. And now I recognize that it's actually super easy for me to be an adult. Like I have a, so much luxury that I should be making adult decisions. I should be a grown up. Right. So I've arrived, you know, I've arrived at that place finally. And so when you talk about writing this book and you talk about having a question that you wanted to answer, that's where you started in the writing of the book. Yeah. Because I just had Lynn Tillman in here and we were talking about this very thing, how it seems like it's the more normal course of events when working on a book to sort of begin in a, in a more vague way, in a less like defined way. For sure. I did that. And to then yeah. like at, towards the end of the process, you know what it is, you realize like, Oh, this is the question I wanted to answer. But she was talking about how like she begins with like very explicit, specific questions and then tries to answer them in the work. And so I find that interesting. I think another writer that comes to mind who feels that way to me is like Vonnegut where like he's got some sort of philosophical question that he, yeah. he's working from as opposed to toward, if that, you know, I mean, I did, I was just more exploring this character. So I wrote like three chapters or stories, I guess. Um, they all sort of start out as stories first about a year before. And then I threw them away and I wrote another, I didn't throw them away, but I just was like, this isn't a book that I'm going to write. And it was all, it really was about this woman watching her best friend get married, have a baby. One was get married. One was have a baby and one was get divorced. And she was watching her experience, all the like grown up life story, like that cycle of story. It was a, yeah, it was like a story cycle from her perspective of like never getting married, never having a baby, never endorsed. And like her life just being a little bit met, like being messier than her friend's life. And I wrote that and then I was like done with it. And I didn't think I needed to go back to it. And then, um, and then I did, I came back to it because Alex Chi, who's a really good friend of mine, he knew I was kind of, I had written, tried to write something else, a ghost story and I threw it away. And then I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. He's like, let me just see that other stuff that you were working on. Like one of the stories got, had gotten published on Guernica. And then he said, let me just see it. And I showed it to him. And he, he's like, I don't know why you're not writing this. And so then I, I went away. I went to a residency. And I was like, I'm just going to try it. And I went to a residency. And I wrote down a list of all these things, questions about being a grown up. And also about being a woman. And there was just a lot of stuff there. And I, and I just went through and I wrote each a story surrounding each one. So each one is kind of a question, but the larger question I think is, you know, what does it mean to be a grown up? And it does explore, explores a lot of these, you know, questions that, um, you face as you move through adulthood, like to get married, to have children, to not get married, to mm -hmm. not have children. If you make that choice as a man, what does it mean? If you make that choice as a woman, what does it mean? If, uh, I was just looking, uh, at some article online recently, it was like just the other day and they were, um, it was like a, what do you call it? Um, not a listicle, but an infographic. Mm. And it was breaking down the percentages by generation of those who are married versus those who are not. 
in the 24 to 36 age bracket or something. And I think like a full 58% of the millennial generation in that age bracket is not married. Mm. And, you know, the trend is, it's trending toward people choosing not to get married. Uh, you which, don't need to get married. Yeah, which wasn't the case, yeah. you know, in pre- previous generations. So things are shifting. And, yeah. and that, mean, that means a redefinition of what does it mean to be grown up? I know. And then also like a lot of the characters in the book are even, even if you, yeah, even if you do get married, it doesn't mean anything. Or if you have a baby, that doesn't mean you're a grown up. That right. just means biologically. You procreated. Yeah. You, yeah. Something happened. I think that's what I did. <laughs> Some magic <laughs> happened. Uh, yeah. So um, these, so it's coming, you know, all the characters are kind of having their own existential crises throughout the book here mm-hmm. and there. Her mother does, her sister-in-law does, her brother does. She has coworkers. She doesn't know what she wants to do. She doesn't really like her job. She's good at it, but she doesn't really like her job. But um, although it was important to me that she be good at her job, yeah, um, I sort of had her be kind of average at her job and my editor and I talked about it and she said, um, and she'd wanted me to like make the character a little strong. Like I tend to be hard on my characters and then my editor makes me warm it up a little bit. And then I had this like very interesting experience where um, Rebecca Traster had this book about being single, all, all the single ladies that came out. It was a nonfiction book. And, um, and she had a book party and this Anna Holmes, who's a friend of mine was in conversation with her for her book party in New York. And Anna had posted a picture on Facebook of all the women in the audience at it. And I, lo- I was like studying that picture. Cause I was like, these, these are the women in, you know, at a reading for all the single ladies. And my book is about the single woman. Didn't, didn't Megan Dahm do a book like that? Like some sort of anthology? Or maybe oh, she was maybe. In, or oh, maybe yeah, she people was... who didn't want to get married. It was like a non-marriage. I think it was a non-marriage book. Oh, okay. Maybe, I think. Um, and I, but anyway, I was staring at the, all these women, their faces, and I was like, all these women are good at their jobs. I just knew it instinctively. And I like actually stole that picture from Facebook, and I put it on my desktop, and I was just like staring at them and studying them. And so then I went back into the book, and I was like, I need to make it really clear that she's really great at her job. Whether she likes it or not is is, I mean, it is relevant, but it's not. You can be great at your job and not like it for sure. That's like most people, I yeah. think. Yeah. So I was looking at, I mean, I really was looking at, I mean, it's a 360, the book to me is a 360 view of like being a woman, um, and especially at a certain age, at a certain age, oh, I hate that phrase and I just used it yeah. at her age. Yeah. It's tough <laughs> stuff to talk about, frankly. Yeah. You know, because it's, uh, you can walk into like landmines, but it, uh, it's, I think it's on everybody's mind or it's mm. on most people's mind, whether you, whatever side of the equation you happen to fall on. Yeah. I mean, I'm 46, so I know what side I fall on. Yeah. Um, the but, side that's dying. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I'm 40, almost 43. Um, but you know, it's like, uh, it's easy. I think for me anyway, just temperamentally to second guess the decisions I've made in life. You want to, I want to do life right. And I know there's no way to like, that's always in quotes, but yeah, I want to make wise choices. And I, I worry, it's easy to worry. Like what, like going back in time, like, God, I used to be so stupid. Mm. Like, didn't, did did we all, were, was, I mean, I was a oh, hellion for many, many years. Were we all as stupid as me though? I feel yeah. like I might've distinguished I don't know myself. How, I don't know like the details and you'll have to tell me later how stupid you were, but <laughs> I was plenty stupid. I mean, uh. I definitely like through, have thrown down a lot in my life and, um, and I, there, I think just physically I couldn't have kept going. Honestly, if I could still do drugs, I would totally do drugs. Like I love doing drugs. But you were able, so much you fun. were able to turn it off. You I could... did. I, had, I think I just 
for me, it was like the recovery time got really hard yeah. and it would be like three days I'd reco- be recovering. And then at some point I really, when I started to focus on writing in my career, which was in my, my first book came out in 2006. So I was 35 then, but I wrote it in 2004. So in my early thirties, I started to really buckle down. And I mean, even though I still had a great time after that, but I, um, now I really enjoy getting up to do my work. And there's never a time where I think I have three days to spare right. to just do, to, and certainly not to be hungover in bed. You want to, I, I had the exact same experience, more or less, yeah. where I went to Vegas for a friend's bachelor party. That was the last time I ever like really went for it. Never did it again. And yeah. I, I was hungover for like, I wasn't right. Like a week. Two. And the reason I know is because I was working on a novel then and I was keeping word count. Yeah. And charting it. Like I would just write down where I was every day just so I could have it in front of me. Yeah. And I just looked at the, the two week period after that. And I was like, I can't do this. Like this is, took a bite out of me. Yeah. And I was like, this isn't worth it. It's not worth it. It's not. And even like, especially um, Mardi Gras season in New Orleans. Oh God. Yeah. I just, this year I had a, I got an, an assignment, like a travel writing assignment and you know, Mardi Gras lasts weeks and weeks. And in the middle of it, I had this travel assignment to go to Guatemala for a week. And I was like, is this, it's my first time not doing all of Mardi Gras season, right? In six years. And, and actually it made me feel like I officially live here because I can like not do Mardi Gras. <laughs> right. I mean, I got to do the tail end of it, but I was like, I took like a week off in the middle and came back and was very fresh and just hadn't been like running around doing these things. And I had a friend that I, who I love her, but I, I ran into her after the fact and she'd done Mardi Gras like straight through. And then it was like maybe two weeks later, two, it was two weeks or something after Mardi Gras. And she's like, I'm really having like a Mardi Gras withdrawal. And I was like, it's been two weeks, <laughs> but it actually like might take you two weeks to like recover well, if a, you do it straight through. The drinking culture mm. in the South, but especially in New Orleans. I mean, like my cousins live there and have kids and like they go to little league games. There's like a full bar at the little league. Oh park. yeah, for sure. You're standing there at like 11 o'clock There's in the morning there. and yeah. it's like, you're having yourself a mimosa or whatever it is, you know? And, uh, they don't think twice about it. And when you're there as a visitor, I'm always like, oh, it's so lovely. Like everyone's like so easy going about it and fun loving. Uh, but I wonder like as somebody who has lived there for many years now, like, do you see a corrosive effect? There were a lot of people in trouble with drinking down there. I think so. My, I didn't really, I don't really notice it as much anymore, but my family came to visit. My brother was there and he was like, man, there's like, they were downtown though. Like they were in the quarter and he was like, man, there's a lot of drinking, boozing going on here. My friends are all like productive people. I mean, I think people do drink there. Um, it's definitely more than it's different. I, I always compare it to New York, where people drink a lot in New York City as well. Right. And people in, in New York, um, it's like they're getting off work. They're like, I need a drink, and then they're going to have like two cocktails in like an hour. And then they're going to go home, but they're going to have this really intense, like they need it kind of thing. Whereas down there, I think no one needs it. I, I mean, certainly I'm sure people do need, quote unquote need it, but yeah. I think people were like, let's, ha- let's go out and have a good time. I just so started, it's a different vibe on it. I, I went through this, uh, I've, I've been feeling really weird because like back in November, I was like, I'm not going to have a glass of wine or two with dinner at night. Like I always do. Yeah. I'm, I'm that guy. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to be in this ritual. And I'm sort of Buddhist. And I was like, this, 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 I want to, I want to be better. By the way, if you write a memoir and if you don't call it sort of Buddhist, I'm never going to forgive you. <laughs> Buddhist. <laughs> uh, I might, I'm working on something. We would, it's like workable, but the point I'm trying to make is just that like, 
I did that for like three months and then recently was like, yeah, I'm going to have a glass of wine. Yeah. How did you feel without it though? Fine. Like Either I, way. It never, matter. never more than two. That's the thing about it. And I'm not, I'm not no bullshit. I never have more. I don't get fucked up, Yeah. but I do medicate. I mean, there's, there is an effect when you have for two, sure. two glasses of wine. And so like, I don't know. It's like, am I being ridiculous to like micromanage myself this way? Like, it's not like I'm being excessive. Yeah. But I am doing it every day, which is like ritualized. And is there... Is, uh, I mean, I think if you want to have a glass of wine, you should have a glass of wine. One glass of wine, they say, is good for you. Two for men, one for women. Is that true? That's such bullshit. That's a lie. <laughs> Three for women, because we have to put up with men. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I, I like... I like to, I really like to, I mean, I've just been on the road. I really did drink every night for the last week and I'm really looking forward to just not doing it. But, uh, I don't, I'm definitely not in a position to judge or assess or give advice on what, how, how and why people should be doing what they're doing. I know that I'm more productive. So like when I'm writing, when I'm really writing, what does it, what does it look like? Let's get there. Like in terms of like Jamie, when you're deep into a book. It's different now. So it evolves. Like I, I'm sure how I was when I wrote The Middlesteens is different than how I am now. And I just was having this. I had breakfast with Merritt Tears and she was asking me about my process this morning. And I was like, well, this is what it is right now. By the way, this is what writers do when they have breakfast together. They just talk, talk about process. process. It's <laughs> actually like a real thing. Because <laughs> she's like working on hers and I was like, all right, here's mine. Um, I, um, right now what I think it looks like. So it's changed because of the election. So, because I, I think we're all strapped to the internet way more than we used to be. And so I have to very consciously block myself from the internet in a really specific way. Because if for even a second I turn on the internet and and catch the news before, because we have this fucking piece of shit president who tweets at six o'clock in the morning. And so you wake up and then you like lose your mind. So I have to not look at the news at all. So what I've been doing when I am able to just focus on my work, and I believe this is what I will do again, is I get up and I read something for an hour, like a book, a good book. So that, and that always makes me want to write. You meditate. Didn't we talk about this last time? Maybe I do. Yeah. But I, um, I do, I do it. I'm doing it like once a week. Okay. Um, and then here and there when, you know, but I'm just doing like, I'm reading for an hour I'm handwriting for an hour. I'm trying really hard not to be online until noon. So six hours of quiet writing, reading, thinking, walking my dog, not taking my phone with me. Contemplation is the, is the goal. That's a work day. Hell yeah. Um, and then typing up whatever I wrote in the morning, in the afternoon. But the minute I turn on a computer, it's over. Like if I get online, it's just over because there's so much to freak out about. Is that why you handwrite? Simply because it, it enforces the discipline? Like there's no I handwrite because I don't, I, and I know everyone keeps yelling at me when I say this. They're like, you can just turn off the autocorrect in your word or whatever. But um, I find that when I'm writing, when I'm typing things in, that it feels like things need to be perfect. And so I'm not as like creative and free flowing. And that there's this little, you know, the autocorrect sort of is in my mind, right? And then whereas when I'm handwriting, I can just make mistakes and go long and cross things out. And so I try to do that first because it feels like the purest way to do it. There's something childlike about writing by hand too. And there's studies about the difference between typing and handwriting, like what parts of the brain it uses, things like that. So when you, when you type it up in the afternoon, are you fixing as you go? I'm fixing as I go. Oh, okay. 
Um, but lately all I've been doing is dumping. I haven't been fixing. I've just been dumping it in there. And I know because I'm just, I've had a bunch of other stuff going on that when I go back, so I'm doing this tour and then I'm going to go, and then I have a couple other things I'm doing this spring. And then... You mean like, like reading events and stuff? Yeah. Like I'm doing a couple festivals. Okay. Going to San Francisco for to Co- do, to Coachella. Do a couple events. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's just dying for this 46 year old lady. <laughs> You'll be read reading in, book, you're reading in the cool downtown. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's not happening. I am going to Geneva, Switzerland, which I'm very excited about for oh. a festival there. I think that'd be cool. That'll be fun. Yeah. So I'm going to go, um, and do a couple more weeks of travel in the next two months. And then in May, June, July, I don't have anything. I'll be done with like all my freelance work. I'm not taking on any new freelance work. I'm done with my teaching. You teach where? I teach like at a, I don't even want to say it because I don't, it's like a Canadian program. That I oh, teach. okay. Only because like random, it's just, I don't know. I okay. don't know why I don't want to say it. It's like an online thing? It's like I, I have two students that I work with that I, um, each year that I critique, send them critiques of their work. Okay. Yeah. And, and then the they f- probably wish I would say their name online. <laughs> it's Humber College. I don't know why I'm being funny about it. All right. And then fr- uh, freelance magazine work. Freelance magazine work. Mostly travel? been a little bit of travel lately. Um, I do some essay. Last year I did like eight pieces, which was very, when I was just updating my resume because I was applying for residency. And I was like, oh, that's why I didn't write a new book last year because I wrote eight freaking essays for like magazines and like big, you know, pieces. Could you put, could you potentially put those into a book? Like, are they of a piece or is it too disparate? I don't know. I don't know how much people will care about my nonfiction writing. I mean, it's good, but I don't know if I it's not like I'm like, I don't know, like Sloan Crosley like writes very specific comic kind of pieces. Like mine are kind of all over the, there's not like a journey that I'm going on through it. Even though I guess I'm doing travel pieces. So that's a journey. It is a journey. I'm take, I try to take stuff that's interesting that'll like teach me something new or I write personal essays that I, I just did a personal essay for the New York Times Magazine about getting a hysterectomy that was like made me not want to write about my life ever again, even though it was like a really good piece. Like it was a great piece and I've heard a lot of things, but also like that was so intimate that it felt like I was, I was done being intimate for a while. Yeah. No, I get that. It was I, it's yeah, hard. Cause you do like all, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I do it on the show, but I mean the, the book that I'm working on is super intimate. I just struggle with it for so long. And I, like once I get it done, I'm like, I'm going to write, uh, I'm going to write like a fantasy fiction or mm. something like just as a palate cleanser. Yeah. Essentially it's got to be, I wrote that piece because I was in physical pain for a long time and then I had surgery. I have a friend who just got a hysterectomy. And then fixed it and it'll make you feel better. She had, she had some sort of like growth or fibroids. Fibroids. That's what I had. Same. How big was it? Mine had three. If I I may ask. I had three that were this, each one was the size of essentially like a three month old fetus. So I basically had a baby in me that oh, I was carrying. So yeah, like the, the <laughs> so friend of ours just had one. It was like the size of a grapefruit. Or yeah. Something. Yeah. It's bit, they're really big and they are painful and they wreak havoc on your life and they make you crazy and they make your periods terrible. And so I lived with it though for a couple of years. Cause I didn't, I mean, the essay sort of explores that. Right. And then all of a sudden I was like, Oh, I feel I ready for a variety of reasons why I was ready to do it and could do it. And now I feel so much better. Did, did you have a, the procedure done in New Orleans? In New Orleans. What yeah. Hospital? Um, Oshner. Yeah. Yeah. And My sp- cousin might have been your anesthesiologist. Oh really? Yeah. What was his name? 
It was it was a girl. Her oh. name's Kelly. Oh, I think I had a guy. Oh, you did. Um, yeah. Well, maybe that's probably not my cousin. Then. No, um, <laughs> but it was like I thought. I spent. I sat on it for a year because I to write about it. Like I had it a year ago. I couldn't figure out how to write about it, but I knew that I wanted to write about it, and it felt important to write about it because I had something to share. Um, I often get approached to you know by editors who read a funny tweet of mine and say, will you turn this into an essay? And I'm going to say, no, I say no a lot. That never happens to me. Oh, really? No. All the time it happens to me. Just last week it happened to me. How funny are your tweets? They're pretty, they're, <laughs> they're like about, you know, they're interesting enough. There was one piece I, and like this editor was so lovely to ask me to do this, but it was, I tweeted something about um, how I got invited to the perfect party near my house, which was like, it was like at a pizza part parlor and there was going to be another restaurant was bringing awesome sandwiches. And apparently there was like a frozen ice sculpture that was like, had booze coming out of it. Oh, man. And my friend texted me and was like, do you want to come out? And there was like an awesome DJ and it was, it was five blocks away from my house, something like that. But I'd already taken my bra off. So I was like, I can't go. <laughs> like, that's the rules. I can't go. And an editor approached me and was like, well, do you want to write about what it means to take your bra off? And I, and I tell you what, I gave my all. I wrote it. I wrote about, I wrote like a 600 word funny piece and I sent it to her and then she sent me notes back and I was like, you know what? We're not going to publish this because it's just not what I need to be saying to the world. Right. Like I just felt ridiculous writing about, it's not what I do. Yeah. But um, it's nice that they ask. It's really nice that they ask. See, and I've gotten a lot of really good work off of it actually. Well, what happens to me is I tweet something and editors like write to me and say, please stop. <laughs> just <laughs> don't, don't ever, <laughs> just don't write about this. <laughs> yeah. It just says, shh. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's why I think that's why I can't get off the social media because it really is from a business perspective. Well, and all the, all the writers are there. Mm. I mean, not all the writers, but that, that really is where in terms of social media, it's not about the writers so much as the readers for me. Yeah. It's about connecting with an, with an audience. Although I love my writer friends and it's how I keep in touch with them, but it can make people crazy. I just try to use it for, I try to be funny on it. I try to, um, or use it. Sometimes I like fundraise for things on it. Um, I try to connect with people on it. Um, I don't, I'm not a person who's like, have we connected on social? I don't know. We need to connect. Okay. I'm, I'm good on it. I get a fave my you tweets. Can... <laughs> <laughs> um, I try all these things because I think that's what I can offer through it as opposed to getting into wars with people, Yeah, that's which easy. I just can't do it. No, and it's... nobody, and I weirdly don't, and I'm knocking on wood here, but I weirdly don't get targeted in the same way. Like I have friends who just people have figured out they're there and they get how have all these men and their mentions who are saying really terrible things to them. Oh, man. And I think they're just like, look at me and like, she's just old and we don't care. <laughs> and so they leave me alone and I, nobody comes after me. Well, it's to me, it's like, like just as a reader, as somebody as like a kind of a passive uh, observer yeah. of this stuff, I don't get engaged in the, in the wars. It drains me emotionally mm. just to observe it. I don't understand how anybody can on a daily basis endure if you're one of these people it's who terrible. is a target like doesn't it just sap your vital energy it's terrible like it's so terrible it's an assault it's like it's it's at the same as like someone like punching you in the head i think and the, the here's the question though is like is it better to respond and to sort of and to sort of uh punch back and like stand up for yourself or is it better to just let the crazies be crazy and ignore them it depends on who you are and how you I know some people who are so good at just taking these people down and it's really, it's really funny. I, I just think, can we, uh, I don't know. It's very upsetting, but I, I don't know the answer to that question. I fortunately don't really have to like get into it too much, but, um, 
But I support my friends because they're fighting the good fight. But I just, I worry, I definitely worry about them, like it taking a toll on them. I want them, some people just take vacations. Some people like, you know, oh, okay, I'm off Facebook. Okay, I'm off Twitter. I don't have Facebook on my phone anymore. I have Twitter on it right now because I'm traveling. I definitely have a set of rules. You do. For social media. You're a disciplined person. You are. (sighs) You get it done. What is this, six novels now? Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I mean... I, but I wasn't. You learned how to do it. It's a learned skill. I wanted it. Yeah. I was hungry for it. Now I like it. That's another thing Merritt and I were talking about this morning, actually. Too bad she's not here. We could all chat more. <laughs> right. um, because I was like, this is how I pay my, I don't have a choice. Yeah. This is how I pay my bills. There's no it. going back. Like, I, I don't even know what job I could possibly get at this point. Right. And I love my job and I just don't want to. So I ha- have to get up and do the work. I mean, I, I want to do it, but also I have to do it. And it's also like, what a privileged, uh, so privileged. existence. Yes. And like, it's a rich way to live, to be in the world of books and to get to like six hours to be contemplative. Like, I don't know. It's a, it's a good way to, to live your life. I think there yeah. were, there are worse ways. It's good. And then also like the things that you can do because of it, things that you can make happen at, you know, there's organizations that I'm involved with that I'm like, okay, now I can tweet about this organization and it will help raise money for this organization. Or, um, I had a woman, I tweeted about this the other day, but I had a woman who came to my reading the other night and she, she said, I almost wrote you a fan letter, but I felt weird about writing a letter. So I just came to the reading tonight to tell you that I, your book made me feel seen. Oh, I know. I'm almost going to cry saying that. This book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we had like a nice little chat and I was like, that's just, that's, that's it. an incredible moment. And I mean, it really was like an incredible moment in my life. And it's not the first time that I've heard it, but there was, I just didn't expect it. And I, why um, are those moments so easy to forget? It's like, then, then you'll I'm, be like beating yourself up someday. It's like, you need to have like a little list file. of like how, but it's good. It's like, it changes you a little, you know, yeah. affects your synapses or whatever a little bit makes you feel, it keeps you going. All those things keep you going. Yeah. So it's worth it to try to find, to write a book that will make people feel seen or, less alone or connected or, um, or entertained or I don't know. I just sent the first like 50 pages of my new book to my agent and we, and then he was like, Oh, this, and I'm not going to say what it was. And then we had like a conversation about it and then about his life and like how he felt connected to this, this thing. And I was like, all right, I'm on the right path yeah. because well, somebody else is going to feel that way. I feel like all grown up, you know, you're speaking to, it's like one of these things where I mean, you're not the only author out there who has dealt with these kinds of themes, but there's a particular take on being, um, an independent woman who's leading a quote unquote unconventional life that I think is sort of like right there under the surface for so many people. Mm. And so books that articulate something that's sort of there, but isn't necessarily being said. Um, I mean, to me, it all feels really obvious, but yet at the same, but maybe it's said in a nonfiction way and not said in a fictional way. Yeah. Or like I it didn't know. feel like, I mean, I certainly inv- invented her, but I didn't feel like she, I wasn't like creating a supernatural character, you know? Like, no, I, but I can feel how reading her story would feel like a relief to, I think to some people it does feel like, and then some people hate her and they just can't deal with it at all. And it's, it's too personal for them or they're not enough. I mean, I don't know, whatever. I can't critique my readers who don't like me because, or, or not my readers, but a reader who doesn't like my work because everyone's allowed to feel however they want to feel. 
but I've definitely seen some commentary where they're just, where people are like, it's too, it's too close. So I don't want to read it. I've also just had people who are like, I hate her. I don't connect with her. She's too do you narcissistic. Know my, do you want to know my weird take? Like reading it? It's is, you. It's actually, <laughs> it's my inner child. Uh, I feel like, like what it reminded me of when I was reading it, I was like, I was like this is almost like a female Brett Easton Ellis hmm. character. That's interesting. Because uh, there's something I feel like pretty masculine about his books. It's not, it's not like a one for one. Yeah. But I felt like it was some sort of like inversion of that or something. Huh. That's interesting. I don't know. Was I that what you were thinking when you sat down? Yeah, I totally. I think about him all the time. When I meditate, I just say, Brad Easton Ellis over and over again. He's my mantra. Um, no, I don't. I no, but I, he, you know, Bright Lights, Big City, big influence. Oh, it was? When I was in high school. Okay. So there's something about the speediness of that book. It's a speedy New York book, and this is a speedy New York it book. It is. And the pacing of it is really speedy. Totally. So maybe that's what you're... I could feel there's just because it's a New York book. Yeah. And maybe that is it is. It was deliberately pacing. like it was deliberately paced in a specific way. And and even I'm finding that I am still uh, the book that I'm working now, working on now, the pacing is there's remnants of this pacing and that pacing. And I actually need to slow it down. Like, I know that when I do a revision, I'm going to slow it down. But I enjoyed the, the pacing. Yeah, it's fun to read this. Yeah, I wanted it to feel I was thinking about how people read now. Yeah. And how we get information now. Yeah. And so I was writing a book that was like tar- like targeted to a specific, like if you see my notes, my little journal entries to myself while I was writing this book, it's just like really thoughtful about how people consume information. Well, and there's also like, a, I mean, it's very, like it's, a, the voice is very literary, but there's also like a kind of a, a very conversational vernacular feel. It's a trick because it's not like, yeah. I don't mean to suggest that it was just like a, no, there's lots of off, no, but, there's lots of tricks in it. Yeah, yeah it, it's hard to do. But there it, was a thing that I was trying to do with it, where I I thought I don't really want to write about being single, and then early early on you sort of know she sort of throws that away, right? Like the second chapter of the book where she's reading the book about being single and she's like leaves it in her laundry room because she just doesn't even want to read this fucking book, and um and I was like so it's like I was saying to the reader like this really book isn't really about being single. It's really about this bigger thing about being an adult and being a human being connected to the world. And, um, and, and so then I was freedom. like, let me try all these things, experiments within it to make it more interesting. Yeah. And uh, when you talk about uh, writing, uh, like the ritual, we talked about the handwriting and we talked about, you know, walking the dog and then retyping. But you, you spoke of like reading first thing in the morning. Mm. Like, what do you read? Well, I'm re- I try to only read good things. I don't read the, I mean, I'm sure all the books that are sent to me for blurbs are fabulous, but I don't, that blurb reading is not part of my morning reading. So is it fiction for fiction though? Or are you fiction reading for fiction? Every so often I'll, in the afternoon I'll re- might read like a memoir or something like that, but the morning reading should be fiction for fiction for the most part. So I just read stuff that I know is going to be good. Like I just read the bluest eye. Okay. And I was like, that's going to be. Like I, I've read every, I, for some reason it was like the one Toni Morrison I hadn't read. And I was like, that's going to be amazing. She's amazing. Um, and I just read it really slowly and Enjoy thoughtfully. It. It's so good. Yeah. She's such a, I mean, it's 20 years old or whatever it is. And it's just such a great book. So I try to read stuff that I think is going to be, I read short stories. I've been actually was reading a lot of poetry. That's not, I, I like reading poetry. Poetry's real good yeah. for language. Right. I feel like there's a version 
that I'm going to do for this book that's going to be a poetry version of it. Meaning when I do a revision, I'm going to read really intense amounts of poetry and work on the language because that's what it's about to me for me is that is like the magic of the words and language and poetry. That is a positive. Like this, this specific book or just all of your work specific book. I think that I'm doing a, I mean, who knows, but, and I, I mean, so like what I'm saying is so weird, (laughs) like not to my listeners, (laughs) but, um, I mean, this version is just like the first version is just like, get it all out kind of version. And then there'll be a version where I read it all out loud. Um, is this normal process for you? That I is reading it all like a, like I'll, it takes like, you know, usually like a week to read it all out loud and then you make little changes based on that. Um, do you like record yourself or do you, no, I just read it and then it happens to your dog. Like, to, it, I, it's <laughs> like a crazy moment when you do it. Like it's a week, it's very intense week cause you really get sick yourself in that yeah. week. Um, and then I think I will do a version of like, a, like I really want to up the language. I feel like it's. What's this new book about? Like, can you give me like a, any kind of hint? It's just about, um, it's about, I know I don't want to curse it because it's, you know, what if I don't finish it? But, um, I'm planning on finishing it. It's just about like a really bad man who's about to die. And it's written from all the perspectives of women in his life. Oh, okay. And he's like really just on the verge of like, he's in a hospital and in, had a heart attack and he's going to die. And so they're all kind of reflecting on him. And I feel like, I feel like people are ready for that book. It's a, there's a lot that's going on in that book. Yeah. I got to write it. (laughs) I just have to write it, but I know the title, you know, the title, what's that? All this could be yours. Okay. Now, do you feel like at this point in your career, six books in, you've written a bestseller, um, Middlestein's got optioned, right? Didn't that happen? My, la- my last three books have been optioned. Have been optioned. So all that stuff is happening. Yeah. Like you're sort of living the, the writer dream. When you are working on a book at this stage of your career, you feel fairly confident that you're going to be published. Like, is there any fear yeah, I at all? A, I have a book deal for this. Oh, you do? Yeah. Like, and I, so are you just rolling book deals now? Or is it like, every, is there a point that you could get to where it'd be like, well, we got to cross our fingers and hope it sells? I don't know. Yeah. I hope I get to just, I mean, I'm in the same editor for three last three books. And then this one, she went to a new, she's got a new job and took me with her and signed me to a two book deal. Okay. So, and she's a, I mean, I would love to just work with her for the rest of my life. It's good to have a I suppose I could just, I mean, I hope my career doesn't tank, but (laughs) it seems to be okay. It seems to be going okay. I have like lots of things in motion now. You could turn be 70 and maybe nobody cares, but I feel like, I feel like I got a couple decades of good work ahead of me that I, there's things that I want to say. I'm never going to run out of ideas. Yeah. Um, Why not? Oh my God, because there's so much to think about <laughs> in the world. Don't, I don't you know. think? I don't know. But sometimes like I think about like musicians, especially like rock bands, very few of them have long longevity, but they that's usually, different. They do their best work in their twenties. Yeah. Like, that's the nature of that beast though. It is. That's how, that's just how music, that's just how that scene works. Everybody wants a, like a young, hot rock band, I guess. But it's like you, you got nothing to say. Like, I feel like they just sort of quit. It's like, like what happens to them? Like, yeah. Aren't you listening to music? There's plenty of writers who quit though, too. I always think about that. Like I, when my first book came out, there were all these writers. I used to run a reading series in New York called class of. Okay. And so it was always debut authors. I did this for a couple of years. So I was class of 2006, right? Uh I think I did six, seven and eight. And I, and all these people who I was coming up with at that time, 
some people continued on and some people didn't continue on. And, and, and there's all these reasons. Life happens. There's all these reasons why people don't continue on. Um, but I wonder what, why. I wonder what that is, what it means. But I, don't, I, I have a lot of energy. And again, don't want to have to get another job. Right, and I'm not a person who comes from any kind of. Money. There's no like secret, like inherit- inheritance coming. My like, no, not at all. Right. And I like spent. I bought like my little tiny house in New Orleans, and I have no money left. So when I'm working, I'm like, all right, this is real. Like this is, there's no savings. This is like you're just gonna keep going and doing it. So, I I just really appreciate it. I'm really grateful, but I know I deserve it because I do the work. But I am still grateful because it is like a very luxurious existence you yeah. know it's well in any success in any field it definitely takes hard work but there also has to be a little bit of good fortune like good luck and timing having the right agent knowing the right knowing a person who recommends mm. you you know mm. there's always that element yeah and i think so to not have some sense of that or gratitude for that it misses it a little bit i get i'm always a little leery when people get really uh loud about their, I don't know how they did it. And it's like, yeah, you did it, but like, well, it's a good, I think it can be really helpful for probably for people who, I mean, it's the thing that people ask you about, like how, you know, how to, and really the answer is always like, I worked really hard for a long time. Like there's not any other, there's literally no other answer than I worked really hard. Right. Like there's no, there's just no shortcuts at all, which is, um, both encouraging and discouraging yeah. at the same time. Yeah, you can't get good at writing fiction without just, I mean, I guess maybe there are like a couple people who just come out of the box, like super talented. Yeah. But that's- I got better. I feel a sense of, I got better and I have more. Actually, I was talking to a, a friend of mine in um, in New Orleans who we've, we published the same amount of books. He, and we feel a little bit differently, which is that I still feel like I have things to prove. There's things that I want to do. There's things that I want to accomplish, but also I still- there's something in me. I don't know why that I just, I'm like, I'm, I need each time. I just want people, I want people to see what I got, you know? And then he's sort of, he's less that way. Like he's more at peace. Like he's like, I already know. Are you competitive? What I'm good. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think there's anyone else. I mean, I don't think there's only one me. Yeah. I actually, um, when I moved to new Orleans, I was very wary about writing, um, a new Orleans book or a book set in new Orleans, because I don't know the city like other people do. So I've spent the last two years, um, watching what everybody else does, um, trying to figure out how I might fit into that. So like a lot of people write about crime, um, either through nonfiction or crime, the crime genre, or just the prison worlds there. Cause it's so intense there. Um, Angola, Angola. Zach Lazar has a new book out that just got an amazing review in the New York in the New Yorker about um, called Vengeance. It's about Angola. It's a wonderful book. Um, so there's um, there's historical fiction, like a lot of that, because people are fascinated about the history of that city. Um, but no, I was like, nobody. There's only one me here. I'm, all, I'm the only one who's doing the kind of thing that I do. Um, and that gave me. That's how I got to the place of just being able to start writing about that city a little bit. Yeah. I just, why don't you write about a woman who leaves New York after 20 uh, years and moves to New Orleans? Jeez, <laughs> I'm about to have that speech impediment I was telling you about. Oh really? Where there's like the weird delay in my headphones. So are you sure it's not like you're having, 
a heart attack? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or something like yeah, that. Yeah, for those of you listening, at some point during these interviews, for some reason, there like starts to be to be this uh, like quarter of a second delay between what I'm saying and what I'm hearing. Mm. And That's it causes so me to slur my speech. Yeah, I couldn't tell that you're slurring. I was about to, so I took the headphones oh, you took off. It off. I didn't want to have to I didn't want people to have to endure that. Yeah. I, okay, so let me just say that I think that like recognizing like what your skills are, what your strong suits are, like what your identity is as a writer, what you have to say in the world, which is obviously always all of these things are constantly evolving, but like understanding what your baseline is, that I think is the key to um continuing your career. Yeah. Like tapping into i mean that's the thing when i have students i always like start off with here's what you're good at and here's what you need work on always be tapping into this good stuff always be thinking about working on that stuff and so i do that all the time so i know i'm funny i can come up with good one-liners so i don't even think about it i just know that that's what i'm going to be doing tweets that tweets that get me oh editors just swarming you with job offers right they get me like (laughs) womensmagazine.com $200 $200 articles, just what I've always been dreaming of. I, it's funny like to get to the point where I'm like, I'm going to write this and actually it will walk away from my, you know, $200 thing. Cause I think this will actually be, will make, will be bad for my career. Yeah. Like I, sometimes you just do stuff and you, I don't want to do bad. I just only want to do certain kinds of things now. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, so I know I'm funny, but I also like, I'm not a big plot person. I'm very character driven. I would like to be better at plot. I would like to have bigger things happen. So those are the things that I have to work on. So that's maybe why I'm always trying to prove myself with a new, with every book, because I, I want to get better at the things that I'm not good at. And I, and I want, I want to, I'm never going to write a perfect book. Like nobody ever writes a perfect book, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to just strive for that. Like that's the internal drive and challenge. I was going to ask you, cause you have a friend who's sort of like, whatever, like I'm at peace. I, I'm, he Did knows he's thing. great. He's so good at what he does. And, yeah. he, and he's happy to do that thing. Yeah. But with you, you say the, there are other things I want to accomplish and things that are driving me and it's the drive to improve. Yeah. And to like make to get better, to get better, to be better and to say things. Do you want to be a famous author? Like, do you have a chip on your, do you, have, do you have a chip on your shoulder? Like I'm good at this. I'm going to be the person who gets the ride where, you know, I have this giant readership and I just want to keep paying my bills. And I like that I get published abroad. So I like that I get to travel and I have relationships with my publishers there. And I like that I get to like know people here and like know other writers. And I like all the things that I'm doing. I don't, the friends that I have that are like really, really famous writers, it seems like it's a lot more work. They do a lot more work than I, they make a lot more money than I do, but they do a lot more work. Like which, like appearances? Just like traveling appearances and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and they have different kinds of pressures. And I have like a very quiet, for the most part, exist, quiet existence. So I don't know. I work hard. I don't know. We all work hard. Yeah. I don't have an answer to your question. I don't think that that's, I don't think any, I don't know any writer who gets into it and is like, I want to be famous. I don't know. I think that. we just want to get published that but people want a readership that people i think there are different but there's a difference between having a readership and being a quote-unquote famous writer which is what you asked me yeah famous writer means like you're a celebrity something like that and that does not seem appealing to me there's only like four of those anyway yeah but that's like the people i know who are that i'm like who get recognized who do you know who do you know actual celebrity writers i mean i saw i had like saw roxanne gay last night oh right and she's super famous and gets recognized everywhere she goes yeah she's becoming a celebrity that's a lot yeah she's real she's like a real celebrity and she's, I mean, doing amazing things. It's like, like her work is changing the world. Right. It's a lot yeah. of work to yeah. do. 
it takes a lot out of you. I mean, she's one of these people who I feel like endures a lot on social. Yeah. So she's a brave soul. She's a brave soul. Yeah. So thank God she's fighting there. So you, I don't know how she, I don't know how I have other friends. I'm like, I don't know how you do it. I can't do it. I thought this is the thing though. I feel like there are different uh, levels of ambition. Like some people just really have like gigantic ambition. Mm. I worry that I don't have enough. Sometimes. Are you worried? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I don't like, I don't have like this, like burn. Like some people have like a fire, you know? And they're like, I want to make my mark on the world. I know. Or, or like I'm like literally like, what, I would just like to get nominated for a prize. I don't need to win it. <laughs> it's an honor to be nominated. I did this. I did an in conversation once with, I had, an, I not had to, I interviewed Roxanne at the um, Tennessee Williams Festival in New Orleans, maybe like four years ago, something like that. So I was, and it was before Bad Feminist. It was just before Bad Feminist had come out. And she was just talking about her career goals. And she was just like, yeah, I would like to win. a. I want to win a Pulitzer. And I, ne- I, it never would have even occurred to me say that out loud. I, I think, and I was like, me too. And then I was like, no, it's that she, <laughs> she means it. You don't mean it. But I but, would. But maybe I'd love it's like maybe prize, it's but... maybe it's more emotionally healthy to just come out and say that. Like I'd love to win the Pulitzer Prize for fiction when my novel gets published. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I literally just want to get nominated for something. I don't even care about. I have this. Okay, so I have this whole thing. Once I got, I did get nominated once for Middlesteins. For the LA Times um, book prize. Yeah. Um, and I went and I didn't, I was like, there's no way I'm going to win. And I, um, I didn't even write a speech. Like, I Did just, you win? No. Oh. <laughs> Please. Um, <laughs> what one? Uh, ben Fountain's book. Okay. And Ben Fountain got, and there, I have, and there was like another story that goes with this too, but, um, and Ben Fountain got there and wrote and like gave the most amazing, articulate, intelligent, Speech, inspiring speech about freedom of speech, and it was wonderful. Was this Billy Lynn's long halftime? Billy Lynn, yeah, and um, this was like 2013, probably. And um, and I was like, I would never have been able to give that. I was like, I don't actually deserve to win the prize because I can't give that speech. <laughs> he had it written out. He had he had it written out. He and then I, I that book also got Middleton's got nominated for like a local. It was like Brooklyn Book Festival's something award. And I went to it. And again, I did not have a speech for her because I was like, there's no freaking way I'm going to win. And then David Van won and he um, he got up there and he had read everybody else's books. And so his speech was literally just saying nice things about everybody else's books. Aww. I know. And I was like, yeah, I didn't have that speech for her <laughs> Terrible and human. I was like, someday, if, <laughs> when the time comes, I'm gonna have. If I ever get nominated for something, yeah. I'm gonna write the speech, and that's I'm gonna use it. It's gonna be like my, you know, I'll use the secret, and yeah. I'll just like I'll be ready. But I, if I ever, but it would never even have occurred to me to. I just presumed that I wouldn't win, and I probably just haven't written the book yet. That is that is that thing. But see, there's also a part of me that, I, and I know that like it's good for publicity. I had Lisa Lucas on the show. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy that these awards exist because they put a spotlight on books. But there's also part of me that can like watch, like, especially in the entertainment culture, yep. the endless trophies and award shows and like kissing oh, yeah, ones. Yeah, because you're here. Yeah. It makes me fucking crazy. It's so stupid. It's like, well, we're giving out trophies for art. And, and- it's all like, I mean, I, probably already like predetermined, right? Like people like know before they even get there. It seems like you watch the award ceremony and it just feels a really too neat and, sometimes. And I, I used to get off on watching like the Oscars because it was like fun to watch like the reaction mm. shots. And you just sort of see these like human egos unmasked because like you see the person get the public recognition. And in that moment, mm. it's a very revealing moment. So like as a human observer, I find it very fascinating. But 
it's gotten to the point where it's just like, ah, oh, it kind of depresses me. It makes me sad. Yeah. Like, I, I don't want to launch this. But I've judged, I've judged contests, um, and like where people have gotten like significant amounts of money, small press kinds of things. Yeah. And that's changes lives. It does like change that's, lives. it's so good for, for the writer. It's really, and then you see them get a book deal and it's really exciting. Like a bigger, you know, instead of a small press deal. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with a small press deal, but a bigger book deal, more money and, you know, the chance for more opportunity that will come out of that. So that's, so those prizes do, do mean something. And I think that maybe, I don't know even what it would mean for me, like how, if anything, it would change my career at all, because I think my career is already doing its own thing. Like, I feel like it's already on its own path. I I just, just having like a really good team in place where I really love my agent and I really love my editor. Who's your agent? Doug Stewart, um, at Sterling Lord. He's really, he's the the longest relationship that I've had. What What does literistic mean? I don't know. Is that like literary? Yeah. Okay. It's a Sterling Lord was like, um, kind of an old school, an old school. That's such a lame phrase. He's been, he was around for a really long time. He was like, um, like Jack Kerouac's agent or something like that. So maybe literistic means meant some, something different than, um, or I don't know. You stumped me. Okay. (laughs) Let's look it up later after we're done. Um, yeah. So everybody, I, you know, all the producers that I work with for the, you know, TV projects are all really nice. I will mostly work with women, which is great for me. Um, they're all really smart. Everybody's like, but you know, buys into all the things that I'm doing, even as I've been developing the TV version of all grown up, nobody's asking me to change it where she's, well, can we make it just a romantic com- yeah. comedy? Like that's not happening. Like everyone's like, great. We need this kind of character. We want to see this happen. We want to see this exist. Would you walk away if they did ask you to do that? Cause that would seem to be like, countered the whole deal yes um so no i don't think i would have like signed, signed with them in the first place like it, do, it just wouldn't really make any sense um i i'm like oh i feel like she could like have relationships but i just don't want it to be like She's i don't looking... think anybody would buy it. i don't think a network's gonna or whatever channel is gonna buy this show thinking it's gonna be anything other than that like right. my intention like either it'll happen or it won't um so yeah so and then i got to just meet the writer who um is adapting St. Maisie for the first time, oh. which was really cool. Really, yeah, really. For a feature film? Miniseries. Miniseries. All these things are just like in progress, though. But okay, so it's not like done deal, it's happening, it's going to be on the air. It's like it, potentially. Right, it's attached to... I mean, that one is actually, would be so good because Helena Bonham Carter is attached to play Maisie. Oh. And she's awesome. Yeah. And they have... Um, that's a good, that's a good casting call. Totally. And it would be super, super cool, but I've learned like everything takes such a long time. It's fickle. It's really fickle. And talk about luck and timing and just like some weird cosmic juju. Yeah. And I feel, and I somehow like have, you know, I'm not rich (laughs) (laughs) at all. Like I'm like, all these things have been option, but they aren't really an option for very much. And it is really slow and everything's tied to like it actually getting made. And I know that that's how, you know, just generally how it works. But things can change. Uh, but quickly. so it's in, yeah, and it's just. An, but I like everyone I'm working with. That's good. I don't feel like um, I don't feel like it's a waste of time. I think it, even though it's not really, it seems to sort of not really make you any money in the end. Like, but it feels like it all the everything you do can just you know open your world up a little bit more, and you learn new things. And even just writing this, you know, as far as I've gotten in adapting it, it's how often do you get to be in your mid forties and you learn a new skill? Like writing for the screen. Yeah. Do you like it? Uh, it's a different beast. Uh, I mean, 
mean, I just love writing fiction the most. Yeah. Because I can just go long. Yeah. And just keep going. Um, but I like coming up with funny lines. That part I like. Right. Um, I've never have wanted to be a, in Hollywood or come out here and like work on a TV show or anything like that. It's not really like my jam, but I watching the last two books get it have other writers attached to adapt him. And I felt like I would be the best person to adapt this. Why? Um, because I, I don't know. I just understood her really deep, deeply. And, um, and I, I really own that voice. Like I wouldn't want to see somebody else try to imitate that voice. I felt like St. Maisie, like there were so many different characters, both of the, like both St. Maisie and middle scenes have multiple voices. And this one is such a singular voice. And I, I just feel protective of it. I was just able to let those two go to really smart people, but I was, and I just didn't know enough about it. And now that I've kind of watched it, even though I'm watching it from afar, I'm like, all right, I think I get what it would take to do this. Um, and how much time and like what I need to be prepared for. So I'm prepared for the slowness of it. And you just have to not care. I don't in care. In a weird way. You ha- but it's good. Yeah. Like Melissa Broder. And but I, I do. But Melissa I Broder and I yeah. used to write TV and talk about this. And she was like, what did she call it? She's like, it's like the douche bro. She's like, Hollywood's like the douche bro. You can't want him to yes. call you. <laughs> you know, like you sort of have to just be like, whatever. And like, if whatever happens, you don't even care. And if you approach it that way, yeah, it's better for your sanity. And oftentimes it's the outcome tends to be better. I mean, I have, I haven't been to Los Angeles in a year and I, and I have like all these things happening and I'm just like, uh, let me know when I'm supposed to go. Not like, I'm definitely not coming here to like, just to have meetings for fun. Right. Like I felt like now right? it's been like a year, like maybe I should just come out here and like talk to people, but I don't know if it does anything. I've, I know. just tried. I mean, it was, I, the, the, honestly, the best part about this trip is like all like the stuff, like just seeing like my writer friends Sure. and, and not, and I don't get what you're supposed to do. Like, I just don't get it. People meet just to meet. I, I really believe that they have a calendar. They have to look busy. Taking meetings makes it look like they're doing their job. Yeah. Very few people have transactional power. Um, to get meetings with the people who actually do is difficult. Right. Um, so unless you're in a meeting with somebody who actually has purse string, you know, hand like hands on purse strings and can make deals right there on the spot. What's the point? What's that mean? Ugh. Well, no, it's good. It's good to it's, meet people. I guess because the person you meet with may one day be in that situation, but I've been on a million of those meetings and after a while you're just like, Oh my God, another one. Yeah. <laughs> I, there's not enough that like, I just like, I'm so happy and content in my like little universe in new Orleans that you've got it figured out. I think <laughs> you got a house, you live in a place where you can, uh, you know, it's a cool, funky town. <laughs> You are publishing books. You've got your team in place. <laughs> Things are being optioned. You get travel writing assignments based on tweets. Like, what are you worried about? I'm not really, I don't know, but I still got to write another book. You got to write another I book. I still, it's like the thing that's like in the back of my mind, every conversation I've had in the last week, I'm just like, I'm just, I'm just going to get through this and this and this, and then I get to write the book. Because until I'm in it, until I am like possessed by my book where I will have that feeling when I walk around where I feel like I'm pregnant yeah. with a book, yeah. I'm not going to be happy. Right. I'm happy. I'm cheerful. Yeah. The sun is shining. By the way, the sun is actually shining I, on you. I right know. Now. Um, <laughs> I, the lighting in here is really good. But, I, but I'm not, I won't, I'm not like the best version, like the most perfect version of myself is that person who is writing that book and, and loving what I'm writing every day. What That's about, the fulfillment for me. So there's always some, always a little something missing 
in my daily life if I'm not that. And in, in terms of like making it all work, you know, like financially and um, keeping this thing going. Yeah. Like, do you in your head say, I got to publish a book every two years? Is it it's like- an interesting conversation that I have had with my agent and my editor and um, myself. Um, I think it's like every two, two and a half years. Um, I think that, I mean, that's what it's been, right? I've Is that a realistic pace for you? 2006 and it's 2018 and that book came out in 2017. So that's 11 years and six books or 12 years and six books. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could do it. I can write a book in a year for sure. It's just tiring. Cause you got to like uh, the grind of like all the things that go with putting out a book, like writing the essays and figuring out a narrative of, um, like how you want to talk about the book. Doing podcasts. Doing podcast interviews. <laughs> it's a um, huge well, this drain. is an easy one. Um, <laughs> or, and just, um, dealing with getting reviewed. Uh-huh. Which Do you read your reviews? Thing. Sometimes. Depends. Even if they're bad, are you like, are you like kind of a glass? I got two bad reviews for this book and many, many great reviews. And one bad review was really like, she just really didn't get it. And I, I read it and I, I walked away from it and thought like, as I was reading, I was like, Oh, she okay. Like (laughs) that was my, like, I felt like a compassionate (laughs) moment for her where I was like, she must be really unhappy. Like that's all I could think of. Um, because, you know, this is the thing. This is an interesting point you just made. Reviewers are human. And they bring... If the reviews are just about the reviewer. They're not about the book a lot of the time. Yeah, they, but they bring to the table, like, all of this human experience. And I, I remember thinking about this in the context of movie reviews years ago, where I was like, what? Because I go to see a movie in the theater, and I will hate it. Like, for instance, I went to see Napoleon Dynamite in a theater years ago. Yeah. I walked out, which I never do. I was like, ah, like, I don't get this. Like, this is boring to me. Like, why am I sitting here? And I just got up and left. I think it's a classic. Yeah. I love it. I saw it another, uh, you know, I saw it on TV or whatever years later. And I was like, how did I miss this? Same thing with Anchorman. Yeah. The first time I saw it, I was like, eh, but it was cause I was bringing stuff to the viewing Yeah. and people do that when they read a book. So I understand. Yeah, I definitely understand. I mean, I've gone through like experiences of, of, of where it's just very obvious to me that it doesn't have anything to do with me or the book or. I've met people or I've seen reviews or I've seen people talk about it online. People love to um, tag me with their shitty reviews of my book on Instagram, on Twitter. <laughs> I fucking hate these Thanks, people. friends. Let me just say this out loud again. I tweet it all the time because it just makes me insane. But I'll just say it also in the air. Like, just don't tweet. You don't need to tag the author. Yeah. No need. They don't need to know. Right. What you think. Right. Like, it's real. We know you're, you know, you see it, you do it and, and you think, oh, every time you think, oh, they must tag me because they're saying something nice about me. <laughs> and then you click on it and you're like, or not. It's terrible. <laughs> you hate me. Wow. Yeah, it's really miserable. Uh, I I'm, I feel like I'm mostly healthy about it all. It's about, I think I'm, I don't know. I think I'm like. Uh, you're human. I'm here. I'm human. But I, I've seen people where it just, I know it's not, it's not about the book. It's about the, it's not about the way I write. It's not the piece. Of, it's not about the piece of art that I constructed. Um, although I'm not fallible, I mean, you can hate it too. Like maybe it's just not a. You know, I think it, I like my books. Yeah, I'm into my books. Yeah, it's not for everybody though. Not not everybody is for everyone. Yes, or, you know, like, right? Yeah, it's the way it should be. Right, like it's free. We're all free to think what we want to think. Just don't fucking tag me. <laughs> On that note, yeah, uh, it's so good to meet. I've never met you before in I person. Know. But I feel Thanks like I've known me. you for a long time and it's a, it's good to have you back on the show 
And uh, I just want to congratulate you on all the success you've had because I, I think we talked when the Middlesteins was coming out and I feel like so much has happened for you since then. Mm. So kudos to you for doing Thanks, all the man. work. Congratulations on your puppy. Congratulations on like your like cool scene in New Orleans. Come visit. I will. I'll, you know, there, at some point I'll be down there. Sadly, it'll probably be for a funeral, but I'll, I'll, come, <laughs> o- I'll come over. Just come That's over. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah. We'll drink. <laughs> all right, Jamie. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Okay, guys, there you go. There you have it. That's Jamie Attenberg. Her novel, All Grown Up, is out there now in trade paperback from Mariner Books. Go get your copy, All Grown Up, by Jamie Attenberg. You can find her at jamieattenberg.com on the internet. Her Twitter handle is at Jamie Attenberg. She's got a Facebook. She's got a Tumblr. She's got an Instagram. It's all on her website. Check it out. All Grown Up. Go get your copy. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to uh, support the show, it's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to get the app, the app is free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. And uh, i got to take my daughter to a guitar lesson. i got to go. I've got literally 30 seconds to finish this. And, you know, it's okay. I I don't mean... I hope the monologue was okay. The pediatrician, she came over, she sat on my foot. I thought it was kind of funny. Hope it wasn't creepy. Is it creepy to talk about a pediatrician sitting on your foot? Is it creepy to be a, pedi- uh, a pediatrician who sits on a person's foot? I, I think it's uh, something we all need to reflect upon. Like, when's it okay to sit on somebody's foot? Is it always okay? Depends where you are, I guess. Maybe it's a cultural thing. I got to take my daughter to, get to, uh, to guitar. I got to go. I got to go.